everybody, it's Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today, I want to talk about nostalgia. So this is a little bit different. I normally talk just about the economy, but I feel like it's really important to talk about how we consume media. And I've been really fascinated by nostalgia recently, specifically how it defines culture and therefore the economy. So if you think about things like Super Mario Bros, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these constant reboots, the monetization of familiarity, nostalgia is all around us and it's very hard to avoid it. And Susan Sontag's view on all of this is that we engage in this cult of nostalgia nostalgia, allowing us to focus on commemorating the past versus critically engaging in the present. We like to stay in these pristine museum walls of the past versus building new things. There was a book called The Future of Nostalgia that talks about this more, and as she writes in this book, what is crucial is that nostalgia was not merely an expression of local longing, but a result of the new understanding of time and space that made division into local and universal possible. The nostalgic creature has internalized division, but instead of aspiring for the universal and the progressive, he looks backward and yearns for the particular. And to be fair, I do think there is a place for nostalgia. Like I like to look towards the past and check things out. It's nice to share the past with people and memories are the foundation for our personhood. But from an economic perspective, it can definitely get a little bit skewed. Derek Thompson pointed this out. It's crazy how many different forces in Hollywood are pushing towards infinitely recurring IP loops. Original stories need to shoot the moon with reviews and buzz and to have a chance at 100 million, while middling reviewed renditions of familiar IP throw up 200 million without breaking a sweat. It's cheaper to be nostalgic and it's less risk for both the consumer and the movie producer. We operate in a risk minimization bubble with these really big cinematic productions. But this can be problematic because these big movies often serve as a cultural anchor, giving us a sense of who we really are on a really, really big generalized scale. I don't personally align with these movies and I'm sure many of you don't either, so I'm just generalizing here. But when that anchor is floating in a sea of endless iterations of the past, how can we imagine anything different as a collective? The stories that we tell end up defining us. As Stephen West said, the focal point of your life is uncommon commemorating the past as opposed to changing the present. Your memories are more important to you than your dreams. How do you dream about the future when you're always looking backwards? That's the whole thing with nostalgia. The endless repetition prevents us from iterating on new culture, and when that happens, there's room for brands and corporations to begin defining that culture for us, as Toby Shoring writes in Life After Lifestyle. All culture is made in service of for-profit brands at every scale and size. We begin to define ourselves by what we end up consuming by brands, just look at any gym influencer or various subreddits or merch shops, consumer spending is 70% of GDP growth, so there is an incentive to align us to the products that we buy and the brands that we use and the corporations that we follow. But it results in the commodification of self, a way for us to align to stories and narrative increasingly told by brands, and we end up creating ourselves via consumption. But we also commoditize our feelings too. We try to assetifize, that's not a real word, but we try to assetifize everything that we experience to give it a sense of value on the sociological marketplace. We prevent ourselves from the full experience of the world in a form of therapy coded invalidation based on what we think we are feeling but based on what we think what we are feeling actually means based on like some lengthy framework versus actually simply feeling the feeling like we're always a layer removed from everything that we're doing to be fair there is a balance here but when we get so deep into attaching some sort of value to what we feel like we should feel we entire we develop these like entire complexes around it and that's where things get really dicey right Susan Sontag would say that we do this to give a sense of superiority over our experience is constantly analyzing and therefore alienating ourselves from what we are doing. There ends up being a distribution of experience where you have the Peter Panification of feelings. If you've ever met a guy in their late 20s or even a girl, I'm kind of a Peter Pan syndrome person too, where people try not to feel anything at all, then you have the feeling commodifiers, so you have two groups of people here, who feel everything so much with the intent one day of not feeling at all. Both of them in the end have the same result. They don't experience anything in entirety because 
they become detached. This detachment is only amplified by social media where we are just bombarded by an overwhelming situation in the present. The images or videos or newsletters or podcasts or any sort of media really end up separating us from reality via social media where we can see the most gut-wrenching things to the most wonderful things in a span of 20 seconds to the point where we end up conflating feeling and actions. Because I saw this image of war, I contributed to stopping the war. It creates this idea of connection, this sense of familiarity, but we really aren't doing anything. And to be fair, we often can't do much. As Susan Sontag wrote, thinking about images of suffering is not the same as doing anything about suffering. To treat the images as suffering, as equivalent to the suffering itself, is to participate in the cult of nostalgia. And it's more than just bearing witness to the suffering, it's everything. I think that there are three Ds that we can look through this, this detachment through. De-dollarization, I've talked about it a lot this week, delusion and digitalization. So de-dollarization. I've made two TikToks on this this week alone. One video I responded to was like just spewing straight lies, but had over 10 million views on TikTok, which sucks. Just fear-mongering. Michael Pettis has written extensively about how hard it would be for us to de-dollarize. It's not countries just deciding not to use the dollar anymore, or, although that is the beginning of a worrying pattern. But it, you know, the dollar is the best thing out there. For better or for worse, guys, I'm sorry. Clear liquid financial markets, transparent corporate governance. It's the least nasty meal available, at least. But also structurally, we do have surplus and deficit economies. What the US does right now is, is absorb the world's surplus from countries like China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Export oriented economies rely on the dollar to stabilize their own currencies. Even more structurally, we have a balance of payments, current and capital accounts. They matter. The U.S. has a surplus in their capital account, a deficit in the current account. In order for someone to take on the role of reserve currency, they would have to take on that same structure, which would require a bit of sacrifice from China, assuming they even want to do it in the first place. Structure is very hard to erode immediately. The stealth erosion of the dollar paper from the IMF highlights that the dollar is losing status, but a big winner isn't stepping up, it's a bunch of little currencies. I've talked about it so much. But you would know that from the absolute bonkers fear-mongering on social media platforms. And that circles back to detachment, accepting everything at face value and taking media as capital T truth. And then there's delusion. And all that to say that, you know, being an informed media consumer, is, it's hard. Like I said, we are constantly bombarded to the point of desensitization. Desensitization? Consumption is a commodification of self. And some people use the media outlets that they associate with as a core feature of their personality. It's always dangerous to talk about Elon Musk because of how his fan base can be, but I think that he serves as a good example of the delusion aspect of media consumption. Please listen before getting angry if you choose to do so. Just as an example, Twitter labeled NPR as a government-funded media, which like, fine, they do get some funding from the government, about 1%. And if you want to say, oh, they do get funding from the government, they should be labeled, all of us should be labeled government-funded at that point, probably. Okay, <laughs> all right. And because the label was misleading, NPR pieced out into decided not to use Twitter anymore. Elon Musk shared an exchange that he had with Bobby Allen from NPR where Bobby was like, dude, what are you doing? And Elon responded with via tweet, defund NPR. And this is a great example of truth versus depiction of reality. We don't see certain types of media as depictions of reality. We see them as capital T truth. We give them a free pass. We don't really analyze them in context of the complexity that we exist in. So with Elon, there are a lot of people that took what he said at face value without going layer deeper into what it means. And I'm not advocating for a winner in this situation. Situation. I don't have any sort of interest in that. I think it's just important to be aware of the delusion that threads into everything that we do. Everyone has some sort of angle. I have some sort of angle. You should listen to my content critically too. It's really just human nature. It's up to us to parse out those threads, weave them into our own interpretation, and make sure that we fully analyze why someone like Elon Musk might do what he did. Not a call on his character, but he does have 13 billion in hung debt on a platform that does not know how to monetize. And in terms of you know being critical of 
content, I don't push an angle, but I have opinions, and of course it's going to bleed through with how I speak. That's everybody in the whole world. There's nobody out there who has no opinions ever, because we're humans, and we have feelings and emotions. We have to think about what is obscured and what isn't. So digitization, to tie it all together, existing in the past is easier than engaging in the present, which is nostalgia, and we have commoditized ourselves to the point where we sort of are what we consume, and we've acetized our feelings to give them value on the sociological marketplace. We have condensed a lot of our existence into pixels. Humanity becomes zeros and ones, enabling the aforementioned de-dollarization and delusion. People can be exceptionally cruel, but somehow everyone can be marginally crueler when protected by the glow of their screen. So when we talk about the importance of analyzing our media consumption, it really is about analyzing yourself, but in a way that allows us to remain anchored, to not completely detach, which is just, you know, very, it's so hard. It's so hard. Half of the reason I wrote this piece and I'm doing this video is to remind myself of all of this. We have to be good stewards of the online place because it's only gonna get weirder out here. I included some links in the description box below of things that I really like reading this week. Go ahead and check those out. I hope that you all are doing okay and hanging in there and I'll be back very soon. Talk to y'all soon, bye.